Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. This is the Anesthesia Learn on the Go podcast series from the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology. In these episodes, we will provide a high-yield clinical review of some of the common topics encountered by anesthesiologists at all levels. The following episode will be recorded by a member of our department at UK. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at UK Anesthesia and subscribe to the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology YouTube channel for our videocast. Now fire up your headphones, relax, and let's talk anesthesia. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Anesthesia Learn on the Go podcast. We are excited to have Dr. Rebel, our program director with us today to talk about an extremely important topic, interoperative hypotension. Hello everybody and thank you Riley for having me here with you. Um, this is a very important topic and thank you for allowing me to talk about it. No, we're extremely uh, excited to have you with us today and uh, hope we're going to have some great, great learning. Um, interoperative hypotension is something that we experience on a daily basis or maybe in every case basis and it must be something all residents and anesthesia providers feel comfortable treating. So what classifies or defines interoperative hypotension? There is no widely accepted definition of interoperative hypotension and many definitions have been used across different studies. Actually, in August 2007, a study was published in anesthesiology called Incidence of Interoperative Hypotension as a Function of a Chosen Definition. This study found that interoperative hypotension occurs with anesthesia administration in 5% to 99% of patients in accordance with which definition was used, and for cesarean delivery under spinal anesthesia, the incidence of hypotension varied between 7.4% to 74.1% in accordance, again, with the various definitions of hypotension. So you can see that depending on what definition of hypotension you use, uh, pretty much every, every patient and uh, most cases will have um, some form of hypotension. With that being said, here at our institution, two parameters that we commonly use in the OR to define hypotension are a decrease of systolic blood pressure, more than 20% from baseline, or a MAP, less than 60 millimeters of mercury. So even though hypotension is something we deal with on a regular basis, its significance to outcomes is sometimes underestimated. We forget that severe hypotension for only a few minutes can be detrimental to our patients. In a 2013 study that was published in Anesthesiology by Dr. Deborah Walsh, the study was a retrospective study of 30,000 non-cardiac surgeries at the Cleveland Clinic. This study evaluated the association between an interoperative MAP less than 55 millimeters of mercury and post-operative AKI, MI, and cardiac complications. AKI at this, during this study was, was defined as a rise of serum creatinine by 1.5 fold or more than 0.3 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, and it was, it was seen in 7.5% of non-cardiac surgery patients and was associated with an increased mortality. Myocardial, myocardial injury, which was defined as a rise in cardiac biomarkers, troponin T greater than the necrosis limit, and CKMB greater than the upper limit of normal, was found in 11.6 of surgical patients. This study also found that those patients with longer periods of a MAP, less than 55 millimeters of mercury, had about a 1.5-fold increased risk of AKI or myocardial injury and an almost two-fold increase in cardiac complications. This had a p-value of less than 0.001. These same results have been seen in multiple studies over the last 10 years, and researchers have continually found that a map of less than 55 millimeters of mercury for any time at all is associated with a significant increase in AKIs, MIs, and mortality. So now we have a slightly better understanding of, you know, 
interoperative hypotension, what it is, and also the importance of it. So what do we actually do when our patient is hypotensive? So let's say you're in a case and your blood pressure cuff or A-line shows a map of 52. What do you do? How do you actually validate that this blood pressure reading is correct? So just to go over hypotension and how to validate it, there's different things that we can do. First, you can check your non-invasive blood pressure monitor. Repeat, repeat the cycle. You know, is the cuff size appropriate? Do we have the ability to actually check the blood pressure manually? You know, you can, you can palpate one of the large arteries for a pulse. Is the pulse strong? Is it weak? You know, we can check our arterial line. You can quickly flush the arterial line. Is there a dampened waveform? Is there a possible clot at the end of the catheter? You know, is the non-invasive blood pressure and arterial line on the same side? Is the, is the non-invasive going up? You know, you've set the blood pressure, uh, the non-invasive, to go off every maybe 20 or 30 minutes with your arterial line, and it's on the same side, and all of a sudden it's occluding that artery that the arterial line's in, and, and your blood pressure goes down. Um, so those are things to kind of consider. Also, you can open up your arterial line uh, transducer and, and quickly zero it and make sure that it's zeroed. Also, a common thing that happens is the transducer falls, or it's, you know, the change in bed height uh, will make it so the transducer is at a different location. And so you can always check and make sure that your transducer is in the correct height. You can also look to see if you have a pulsatile waveform on your A-line. So besides looking at your non-invasive blood pressure monitor or looking at your arterial line, there are other things that you can look at to evaluate your circulation. First, you can look at an independent pulse source. You can look at your pulse oximetry. Uh, does it have a good waveform? Has your end tidal CO2 level fallen? This could actually represent a low cardiac output state or an embolism. Thank you, Riley, for mentioning end tidal CO2 not only for ventilation assessment, but also as a reflection of pulmonary blood flow. If you don't change any ventilation parameters, a drop in entitled CO2 does reflect a reduction in pulmonary blood flow. And the other way around also, and we see this frequently during uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, um, if doing pulmonary or like CPR, uh, entitled CO2 increases, that's a reflection actually of return of spontaneous circulation or so-called RASC. So don't underestimate um, how entitled CO2 does reflect cardiac output. Yes, thank you, Dr. Rebel, for that. You know, the thing that I think we just need to uh, hit at very quickly is if you have other signs that this is true hypotension, we shouldn't delay treatment um, just to try and validate. We should make a diagnosis and we should treat as, you know, as, soon as, as soon as we can. Because again, going back to the studies, only a few minutes with low blood pressure can have significant consequences. So. Now that we've looked at this, we've looked at, you know, the definition, we've looked at um, how to validate, now what do you actually do when your patient becomes hypotensive? So there's different ways that you can uh, diagnose and you can look at the different mechanisms of, of hypotension, but we've broken it down into three uh, distinct groups to try and uh, make this simple and try and make it so in the operating room you can quickly and systematically go through these things, uh, through these different categories to help with your diagnosis and then uh, and treatment. The three groups we have broken hypotension into are pre-pump causes, intrinsic pump causes, and post-pump causes of hypotension. So first, looking at pre-pump causes, some of the major ones include hypovolemia, 
Is the patient NPO for a significant period of time? Have they had a large, large bowel prep? Is, there, is this an open abdomen and there's you know, a lot of insensible losses? Is the patient bleeding? Is there a surgical bleed or is the patient oozing a lot? Do we have high airway pressures that are, you know, we have high intrathoracic pressures and that's uh, preventing venous return? Or do we have compression um, either by our positioning or maybe from a, a, you know, a pregnant patient that's causing cable compression and preventing venous return? So those are all things that could uh, cause hypotension that are uh, related to, to pre-pump issues. Next, let's look at the intrinsic pump causes, which include both the heart pump and the lung pump. Those, you know, include arrhythmias. And I think that an important point here is that when we induce a patient, it's always smart to get a pre-induction rhythm strip in case we have arrhythmias intraoperatively so that we can then compare uh, the different, uh, different rhythms and see how things have changed. So arrhythmias can definitely uh, cause, a, cause hypotension. Tension pneumothoraxes can, can cause hypotension. Uh, pericardial tamponades, all you know, included in the, in the intrinsic pump causes. And then finally, embolism. Embolisms, whatever form they may be, fat embolisms, uh, amniotic embolisms, venous embolisms, they can all uh, significantly affect the heart pump and the lung pump and can cause uh, interoperative hypotension. Finally, our last group looking at post-pump causes of uh, hypotension. You know, we can have excessive uh, excessive depth of, of anesthesia. We have our in, inhaled agent or IV, our inhaled agent up too high, or we've given a, a huge dose of IV agents. Uh, we can also have excessive neuraxial block. The patient can have anaphylaxis to you know a known uh, muscle relaxer or to an antibiotic. They can be in septic shock. They can we they can be having a transfusion reaction. All those things can cause post pump causes of hypotension. Riley, thank you. That's a very complete and really great summary of all the causes of interoperative hypotension. As a modification of uh, this structure, um, I like to offer, like, I, I'm using and offering a different approach and a different paradigm. Um, the way how I structure is like preload, afterload, and contractility rule hemodynamics. So therefore, if I have hypotension interoperatively, I look up for those three categories. Preload, what impairs my filling, afterload, what decreases my vascular resistance, and then contractility, which summarizes either inotropy, heart rate, or rhythm, which one is not clicking to provide sufficient cardiac output. And when I structure into those three categories, I look for the differential, more specific reasons, you know, what substantiates that diagnosis. Yeah, I like that as well. I think that's a very straightforward and a very uh, quick way to uh, evaluate your hypotension. So now that we've gone over the different causes um, of hypotension, we're going to we're going to take a moment and kind of run through three different cases. Dr. Rebel is going to walk us through and talk us uh, through these three different cases and how to look at hypotension during a case in the OR and how we should again diagnose it and then treat it uh, in the OR. Actually, Riley, let's do this a little bit differently. How about I give you the case and then we'll come up with a differential and a step-by-step approach together. I think that sounds uh, fun and exciting. 
All right, Dr. Rebel, let's bring on the first case. All right, and I have a really good one for you. Okay. So let's assume we both are in a laparoscopic nephrectomy. And uh, we are already well into the case during the resection stage. And suddenly, your arterial blood pressure drops from baseline 120 over 80. Now it reads 80 over 40. And your heart rate, sinus rhythm, 70, now has changed to sinus tachycardia of 110 beats per minute. What do you think is going on? Well, I think that uh, I would like to look at your, you know, the what you just taught us about preload, contractility, and afterload, and kind of apply that. You know, first looking at preload. You know, we're doing a case where there could be bleeding, there could be injury uh, during this uh, laparoscopic case, um, and so that's always on my differential. Are we are we bleeding? Um, you mentioned that the that the patient is in normal sinus rhythm, so hopefully with normal sinus rhythm, our contractility is should be fine. Um, and then looking at our afterload. Did we just give something like rocuronium, or did we just redose our antibiotic, or did we just give antibiotics, you know, something that could cause uh, an uh, allergic reaction? So those are some of the things that just jump into my head. Okay, so actually, like, no, you're already right on. Kind of, uh, for me, the increase in heart rate, and in combination with the drop of uh, SVR, meaning the systolic blood pressure from 80 now is 40, and the systolic blood pressure also has dropped, that surely identifies a volume issue. Now the question is, is it absolute hypovolemia or relative, which would be preload versus afterload? Contractility at this point don't have the evidence to think like it's a contractility issue. So how you, how you work that up? So I think that uh, one of the greatest things that we can use for our advantage uh, is ultrasound. I think if we have an ultrasound available, we could throw an ultrasound on the chest um, and, and look to see actual the the left ventricle, look and see if it's, you know, if it's underfilled. Um, obviously the patient is having a laparoscopic surgery and uh, is intubated, so if we have a TEE, we can put that down as well and actually look at uh, at uh, the, the LV and look and see if it's uh, underfilled. Excellent point. Now here this is a stage where you need further diagnostics. And yes, uh, big fan in ultrasound, so either transthoracic, which in a patient who is left lateral or in a lateral position for laparoscopic surgery, probably not going to be the easiest way how to obtain good pictures. Right. Um, but since the patient is intubated, absolutely, a TEE would be a great diagnostic tool. You look at your left ventricle and the filling of uh, the left ventricle most likely is underfilled. And if your uh, left ventricular and diastolic volume is low, that would indicate that this is absolute hypovolemia and pointing towards like a patient is bleeding despite surgical denial. Well, Riley, I have another one for you. Perfect. Let's think about a trauma. You know, we're getting a patient from the, from the emergency room directly to our operating room for an expiratory lobotomy. 66 years old, we don't know much about the patient otherwise except status post-MVC. Now we're in the midst of the case, and despite significant or appropriate resuscitation, um, there's no obvious bleeding in the abdomen. Our patient still remains hypotensive. Uh, blood pressure, 80 over 40. Uh, heart rate, 109. Sinus rhythm, but left bundle bunch block, and we don't really know how recent the left bundle bunch block onset is. 
Um, and the patient is on significant doses of vasopressor in a form of phenylephrine infusion to even maintain that blood pressure. So what do you do? So it sounds like we've, we've done a good job resuscitating. The patient seems to not have a preload problem at this point. There's no significant bleeding in the abdomen, um, and it, it seems like his, his preload is, is, is fine. But we need to look now at his, you know, his contractility. You know, the patient has a new left bundle branch block. Is this, we don't know if this is new. It could be, it definitely could be new. Um, we don't know his cardiac history, so that's kind of hard to, to, to know, but we do know that it exists. Uh, the patient had just had a, a trauma. He could definitely have a cardiac contusion, which could uh, be his, his problem with contractility. And, you know, because of blunt force trauma, he could have pericardial tamponade. And so those are all things that could, could affect the, the heart and the contractility. And then when looking at, you know, afterload, He's, he's been in a trauma, so he could have a significant coagulopathy. He could have a metabolic acidosis from, you know, an increased lactate. And those things can all cause vasodilation. So at this point, it's differentiating between if it's, you know, an afterload issue or if it's, you know, a contractility issue. Completely agree with you that uh, using that structure, preload, afterload, and contractility, preload less likely, and the other one, based on the information we have right now, could be intrinsic, could be uh, a cardiogenic or cardio, uh, cardiogenic obstruction as a, as a, tampo, a tamponade would be, um, versus um, that this is afterload related. So what is the next step to find out what we need to do to improve uh, hemodynamics on this patient? So I, again, I think that uh, ultrasound would be a great option here. Uh, putting in a, a TEE probe during this trauma and actually looking at the contractility of the heart. Look at, you know, transgastric uh, view and looking at all the distributions of the, of the different coronaries to see if it's, if, does he have any regional wall mo motion abnormality. Um, you can also evaluate very quickly with uh, ultrasound if he has, if he has a pericardial tamponade. You know, is there fluid around the heart? And so I think that using uh, the things that we have, like ultrasound, can help us very quickly identify if what differentiate between these two issues. We can also send off, you know, an ABG and look and see is this do we, are we still do we still have a, a lactic acidosis? You know, we can send off a TEG and see if we're still coagulopathic. Uh, those things to kind of differentiate between the the cardiogenic or the contractility side and the afterload side. Um, TEE is probably one of the easiest modalities here to put into a patient and get uh, more information about hemodynamics. And yes, it would be very complete because not only do you see pump function, uh, you can rule in or rule out not only pericardial tamponade but also in the dissection. Um, chronic versus acute myocardial ischemia, um, overall gestalt of uh, your, your heart. Um, however, also as an intensivist, probably a pulmonary artery catheter and get objective numbers, SVO2, and also cardiac output uh, also may be beneficial and helpful in guiding further, uh, further treatment. Um, an echo probe you have to take out at the end of the case, a pulmonary artery catheter would stay with this patient, so also your next provider may be able to continue your therapy you initiated. Well, Riley, I have another one for you, last not least, but this is a nice one. Um, well, sounds like your average kind of case we do every day. We are in the ortho room and we're doing an ORF of a female on an otherwise pretty healthy patient. Um, and you're in the midst of the case. 
um, everything is going along as planned, and suddenly your blood pressure drops from 120 over 80 to 80 over 30. Your heart rate increases from 70 to 130, still sinus tachycardia. You also notice that your pulse oximetry from previously 99% on FIO2 of 0.5 now is 95%. You didn't change your FIO2. And your entitled CO2 from previously 35 suddenly dropped to 24. What do you think? Well, looking at the case that we're doing and, and everything else with all of the vitals, with the end title, with his blood pressure, with his heart rate, to me this looks like an embolism. This looks like uh, either a, a venous embolism or a fat embolism from what the, what the ortho, orthopedic surgeons are, are, are doing. Um, we always have to be very aware uh, of when orthopedic surgeons are, are reaming the femurs um, that there is potential for fat embolism. And I think that's what's going on in this case. And you're really using our paradigm like preload, afterload, and contractility, the combination of a sudden drop in blood pressure, increase in heart rate, and then combined with oxygenation uh, abnormalities, as with the drop in, SI2, in S pulse oximetry, and a change in entitled CO2 as a reflection of compromised pulmonary blood flow. That should be very high in your differential diagnosis. This, this is a pulmonary embolism with whatever substance it is. Right. Um, yes, the other causes don't keep them completely off the list. Um, probably not preload, but afterload in systemic uh, mediators, increase in pulmonary vascular resistance uh, could come across like that. But I would very much not go ex on, on a safari. This sounds, sounds more like a pulmonary embolism. Yeah, I, I agree completely. So, so what we do? Well, that's a great question. I think that we, uh, again, we can send off blood gases and look at our AA gradient and see, you know, how our shunting has changed. Or we can, again, throw down an uh, echo probe and, and look and see if, you know, if, if we can identify uh, the embolism. So the common theme really is here, Gav, like in, in, in hypotension, the differential diagnosis um, really comes down to we use echo either transthoracic or transesophageal quite frequently because that's the additional information you need to optimize your treatment. Yep. Okay, well, thank you so much, Riley. I really had a great time like you not know, talking about those uh, different scenarios of hypotension with you. Dr. Rebel, we just want to thank you again for being on the show. I know I had a lot of fun going over these different cases. Thank you for teaching us about how to evaluate hypotension looking at preload, afterload, and contractility. And I think that the biggest thing to remember and to take out of this episode is that even a short period of time with a patient hypotensive can have significant effects on the patient's outcomes. And we must, as anesthesia providers, get really good at identifying the causes of hypotension. And, you know, we need to know how to treat these uh, different, uh, different causes of hypotension effectively. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have ideas for future podcasts, please reach out to us via email at learnonthego at uky.edu. Don't forget to follow us on our social media accounts as well, on Instagram and Twitter, UK Anesthesia. From all of us at UK Department of Anesthesiology, have a great day.